All right, welcome back to 106.7 The Fan. Ben Standig and Britt Giroli here with you until 11 o'clock. And right now we're about to get a lot football smarter because our next guest is going to come on and, and help us discuss the Commanders and NFL Draft. I can't promote his Twitter account because he doesn't really have one, I don't think, but his Instagram <laughs> account where he does a lot of fun uh, film stuff, Logan underscore Paulson 82. Yes, Logan Paulson is going to be with us. And Logan... Appreciate the time uh, late at night. It's not like it's late, late, but, you know, it's past normal uh, radio hours. I appreciate the time. Uh, how are things going in uh, Commander Lane with the draft a week away? Things are going well, man. You know, it's always a fun time of year. I really, you know, as a player, I enjoyed this. Like, before I got in the NFL, before college, draft season's always fun for me because there's just so much opportunity to learn about so many different players with so many different schools. And now I get paid to do it. So um, that's, been, that's been quite a, a, a nice thing for me. Well, and I appreciate the fact how much work you put into it. We were hanging out a little bit together at the combine, and got a chance to kind of you know see what you what 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 you were doing and uh, for the for the team website, but also your own homework. So I know you 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 did do that uh, work. Before we get to the draft, though, I think it's important to reset on the on the actual roster. And I am curious for you, what are the couple things that you think this team needs to come away with next week in the draft? Yeah, so I think everyone's thinking wide receiver, and I think that's more of a result of kind of where the value is going to be at 11. I think those kind of three big offensive linemen are going to be out of there. So everyone's kind of been mocking wide receiver to Washington at 11. But I do think um, they're probably thinking in their minds they need to come away with an offensive lineman. And I, and I would agree with that. I think they need to kind of fill in that right guard spot. You know, uh, Norwell is kind of an older football player, getting some guys in there that are a little bit younger pieces they can build around in the future. Because this scheme, this offensive running scheme that they run uh, in, in Washington is a little bit challenging from a physicality standpoint. They really require the guys to move people, be big and be physical. So if they could find some pieces like that, I think that would be really nice for this offense. I think obviously pass protection with the new quarterback is paramount. Um, you know, and I think uh, defensive line rotational depth is going to be a big thing. I think filling that Buffalo nickel spot, I think that's one of the reasons you see Kyle Hamilton mocks the team quite a bit. Um, it needs to be filled because that was such a big part of what they did defensively. So those are kind of my three big ones. Obviously, people want a receiver in the first round, and I know that's kind of like the sexy pick, but um, I think those other areas of need are probably more important. And I think, you know, obviously rotational piece at uh, linebacker and maybe get a rotational piece in the secondary. So, you know, to me, wide receiver is kind of luxury because you got a new quarterback. You want to make him feel good. But again, I think those other places are probably bigger needs for this team at the moment. That's exactly what we were talking about, Logan, when it comes to wide receiver. It seems like you can get them in, in any round, really. So why should Washington go out and kind of waste that first-round pick on a wide receiver? I mean, would you, if it's your draft, you're on Rivera, um, who are you taking with that in a perfect world with that pick? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I put a mock draft out. It's on uh, commanders.com, so you can go check out who I did pick. Um, and it was Jamison Williams, so gave you the answer to the test there. And one of the reasons I, I would go Jamison Williams despite the ACL is because I think he's kind of an explosive playmaker. And also, because in my mock, I think those three offensive linemen go earlier. Now, I just was exposed to a couple of mocks recently where, like, um, Evan Neal from Alabama fell to Washington at 11. And if that were the case, I would probably go Neal there. I think it gives you a little bit of flexibility. You can either bump Cosme into guard, and that's not an indictment of Cosme. In fact, it's like an endorsement of Cosme that he needs to be on the football field. Or you can bump Neal in the guard. And you get younger, you have some dynamic kind of athletes at the position, and you've got some pieces you can build around long term. Now, I don't think that's as likely. Obviously, in my mock, I had him go, I think, five or seven um, to New York. But, um, you know, in a perfect world, that's what happens. And in a, in a 
you know, kind of big picture scheme, like they would trade out of 11 if they could, right? Because I don't think the top 10 picks in this draft are like outstanding pieces necessarily. I think Aiden Hutchinson is the closest thing you're going to get to a blue chipper. But trading back out of 11 would allow you to address some of these things. You already said like they have this tremendous depth at wide receiver. Jahan Dotson's probably going to be a later first-round pick, and he's one of my favorite receivers in the draft. Christian Watson for his big play explosive ability. I've seen mocks where Chris Olave goes to the Green Bay Packers at 22, right? So obviously if they can get out of that 11 spot, add some pieces, maybe pick up a third-round pick. Because another thing about this draft that's really interesting is it's really meaty between rounds two and probably five, five and a half. And I think if you can add some picks in there, you're going to get some quality pieces and maybe even some kind of legit starters um, if you if you kind of play your cards right with those picks. All right, we're here with uh, Logan Paulson, of course, former tight end, current Commanders analyst for Commanders.com. And Logan, like you kind of, your initial answer kind of hit on what what I was kind of complaining about earlier, which is like having now talked about this draft for weeks, there's only so many places to kind of go because the board keeps falling on receivers. And I'm kind of with you. I don't really buy that, that that's their plan. I think they like De'Ami Brown. They brought back Cam Sims. We assume Curtis Samuel will play. Terry McLaurin's good. I'm not saying they don't need more, but I don't think they need it at 11. It's just I don't know where else to pick it from. You you said you did a mock draft. Who is somebody like if we're just sort of spitballing, like going outside the box, is there somebody else that, you, you know, even if you, it's not ranked that high, you just kind of like and would maybe be at, a, at one of these other positions that you think could make sense? Yeah, so I talked about like for every pick in my mock draft, I kind of gave alternative picks and for Washington because obviously I covered the team it was a little bit more in depth right so I think the first guy that kind of comes to mind is Kyle Hamilton at 11 I think there's a really really good chance that he for sure falls out of the top 10 I think he's a good athlete I think he fits the Buffalo nickel role you talk to guys in the building and their eyes kind of light up I'm not saying that they're they're indicating they're going to take him but you can tell that they like the guy they like what he brings they like his physicality I'm not as sold on him because of the subpar 40 times However, he had, does have nice explosive measurements, right? His vertical jump, I think, was close to 40 inches. His broad jump was in the 90th percentile. Like, those things are a big deal when, when you're projecting play speed, right? Even if you don't run a great 40, because there's a lot of technique involved in the 40. I think he could easily fall to 11. A guy that I love, maybe my favorite defensive player in the draft outside of Sauce Gardner, Aiden Hutchinson, is Devin Lloyd from Utah. I think that's a little rich for an off-the-ball linebacker at 11, especially given the depth of this linebacker class going into the second and third rounds. But I like his tape quite a bit. Jordan Davis is one that I think is a good fit, good scheme fit for this defense, and let me explain why. I think one of the things that Jamin Davis, Cole Holcomb, struggle with is block destruction techniques. Why not get one of the best block destructors in the in the draft, right? A guy that can just eat up double teams, keep those guys free. Look at what Vita Vea does for Devin White down in Tampa Bay. Let those guys play to the best of their ability, add depth to your D-line rotation, a piece you can build around moving forward, allowed Deron Payne to kind of move into that third down pass rush role, which you wanted to do last year. And then when you are in your Cinco fronts, you have a true nose guard. So I think that's really good. And then obviously Derek Stingley, tremendous tape from 2019, like really kind of otherworldly tape from 2019. Obviously, I think that's a little too rich for me because of the 2020-2021 tape, which is um, not good to just put it mildly right kind of creative angles missing tackles things that make you question his passion and love for the game but I think all of those guys I think there's legitimate arguments for them at 11 I do think that they make this football team better Logan 
what do people not realize from a player's perspective about the draft? Um, what is it like to kind of be on the other side of all this? I'm very curious. Yeah, so I think the draft, you know, for me, my experience was, um, I think, very unique and that I knew that I probably wasn't going to get drafted. So my expectations were not very high. And I think you know, when I was in the NFL, this was like, you know, 12, 13 years ago, my rookie year, um, things have changed quite a bit. But now I do do a lot of combine prep for tight ends uh, through my agent. And one of the things that really sticks out to me is how much stuff these guys are doing. They've got unofficial visits before the combine. They've got, uh, they've got, a, they've got visits at the combine. They've got visits post-combine. They've got pro days. They've got local pro days. They have so much stuff on their plate. It has become this total circus for these guys. And like any time, and like it's all, every single data point is incredibly critical. And just like how much stress is on each individual athlete is, is kind of overwhelming. And um, it takes a very strong strength of character to be executing these interviews consistently at a high level and just being true to yourself and not getting kind of caught up in all the hype. So I think that's something that people fail to understand is that these guys are, you know, kids essentially right they're in some cases 20 21 22 years old and they're about to come into a lot of money they're talking to multi-billion dollar organizations they're talking to owners of football teams head coaches these are powerful people and for them to kind of have their head on straight enough to handle those interviews well i think is a testament to the new process that these kids have to go through we're here with uh, logan paulson you had a chance to talk to ron rivera on the uh, team website i had a chance to look at that interview and it was one thing that stood out to me, it was very different than the interview I would have had with him because I would have been like, well, what are you going to do with this? And what player are you going to pick there? And tell me all your secrets and all that type of stuff. And for you, it was much more about the scouting process. What is it that he's looking for uh, when he's watching tape, things like that? And you guys were kind of swapping thoughts there. What 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 kind of came – what did you kind of learn from that conversation that maybe for, the, for us laymen is going to be perhaps pertinent to what they may do in the draft? Yeah, so I think the thing about Ron, that conversation that was so interesting is that everyone does it a little bit differently. Every val- everyone values different traits and different qualities. And I think the thing that stood out to me was that it has to, the, the scheme fit has to be correct, right? And I think also that they really trust their coaching staff here to develop guys. And I think that's not the case everywhere, right? A lot of guys, a lot of teams I've played for, they need guys who are already made because they don't trust the coaching staff to develop the guys. They value scheme fit more. So that makes me think there's certain guys like Kyle Hamilton, who are going to be a little bit higher on their board because he fits schematically really, really well with what they want to do, right? Um, he mentioned the Ohio State receivers a couple times in that interview, and I think that's obvious. You know, they've kind of been leading that way, but, you know, he mentioned a couple of things about things he's looking for in terms of pro day numbers, uh, you know, how they handle themselves when they get in line, their conditioning, all these different things that kind of lead me to think he, they're, they're, they're really tuned into those guys. They've both been in for uh, the official 30 visits, and he said that, you know, those are not misleading visits. They are purely evaluation, which is, again, kind of an unusual thing for a team and an organization. So uh, it was really fascinating for me, and he was very candid, and um, I'm really grateful that he was so honest with it because I think it really kind of shows his perspective and his thought process when it comes to the evaluation and what they're looking for in this uh, 2022 draft. Uh, Logan, let me get you ahead, out of here on this. So I haven't mentioned Carson Wentz. Obviously, that's been the big move of the offseason. And I'm kind of dismissing any idea that they would take a quarterback at 11 because they made this move. They got to go. They got to go see this through and try to help them out. And my question for you would be, what's the best move they could make, say, in the first round 
to do that. Some of these receivers would make sense. I think Drake London would be sort of a prototype for the type of receiver Carson Wentz has had success with before. But what do you think? What's the if you agree with that premise? What's the best thing they can do to help their new quarterback? Yeah, I mean, you kind of took the words right out of my mouth. I think, you know, I, I said my favorite receiver is Jamison Williams. Uh, my favorite route runner is William, uh, Will, Wilson, right? And so my third receiver is Drake London, and I'm a little concerned about his speed. But again, like, he has some really nice um, kind of out-of-frame catches, all those things. And I think for this offense and for Carson Wentz, that's an extremely valuable skill set. You look at the receivers that he's been successful with, like you mentioned, Alshon Jeffrey, Michael Pittman, big-body guys who have the ability to catch out of their frame because Carson Wentz, um, while accurate in a general sense, in the specificity of like a Tom Brady is not quite there, right? So what I mean by that is like he'll miss a throw kind of two yards two, or two feet off your center of mass, right? And he throws a very hot ball and those balls are tough to catch. And so you need guy who's a guy who's got outstanding hands and strong hands and the ability to kind of move and contort and make those plays where you need them. So I think that would be something that would be really nice also, I think something that's been very overlooked in the, in the Carson Wentz conversation, again, we talked about it at the top, is offensive line, right? He, when he was in uh, Philadelphia and he was at his most successful, that offensive line was top five two years in a row. And I know this offensive line graded really well by PFS metrics, but still, you know, we lost, the, the team lost some pieces, right? They lost Flowers, they lost Sheriff. They need to replace those pieces, protect the quarterback, allow him clean pockets, allow him to see his throws and push the football down the field the way they want to. Because I think if you bring a guy like Carson Wentz in to to make the defense defend vertical grass, make them defend every blade of grass as deep as these guys, these four, three guys can go. And to do that, you need a great offensive line, right? And so I think if an offensive lineman were there at 11 that they liked and they valued, I think they would take them. And I've heard from other um, people on the beat that they would even consider moving up for one of the offensive linemen in particular. I don't know who that is specifically, but obviously that's a pretty bold statement considering that there's not great, that the people think those offensive linemen aren't as great as they were in years past. So I think offensive line, and I think a receiver like Drake London would be outstanding at 11 if they were to fall to you. He is Logan underscore Paulson 82 on Instagram, puts up a lot of interesting Film work there, talking about the commanders, and right this week, of course, talking NFL draft. Logan, definitely appreciate the time, man. Look forward to talking again about this team soon. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. All right. We've got plenty more here to go on 106.7 The Fan. Ben Standing, Britt Giroli here with you till uh, 11 o'clock. We'll get some Nationals talk in next here on 106.7 The Fan. All right, welcome back. 106.7 The Fan, Ricciaroli, Ben Standing here with you until 11, talking all kinds of stuff. NFL, we just had Logan Paulson on, talking a little draft. It's like a spin the wheel kind of a show. We're just, you know, we just kind of <laughs> see where see where the topics land, and we kind of go from there. But right now, Britt, if we want, we've got a caller on hold. We can, like, sort of let him spin the wheel and see where the, see where this takes us. My, I'm going to guess. I don't know this. I'm going to guess it's going to be a, a, a you kind of a call. But we'll see here. Chris in Maryland, you're on with Ben and Britt. Yeah, you remember, Ben. Thank you. And I was trying to thank I, um, for 11 o'clock. I don't know what's up with that. Uh, Brett, you said something about the shortened games. I think that, that was because they're enforcing the pitch clock in the minor leagues. I heard that as well. And the home runs, though, I, down or the scoring down. I'd like some more information on that. 
I saw one of the largest pitchers I've seen in a long time, Felix Batista, for the Baltimore Orioles the other night. That was interesting. And anyway, with the Nationals, my main question is this. Uh, why, it was said, Davey Martinez said, Luis Garcia, is, we want him to play every day, so we're going to keep him in the minors. However, Mr. Fox is up in the majors, and eh, I just I just think let's I, – I wish Luis Garcia was up, and maybe he can get into that. And I have and the only bread I could come up with was Brett Burns, left-handed pitcher for the White Sox, and two bands were Ben McDonald and Ben Ogilvy. Thank you. Uh, keep up the great work. Well, All right, I, thanks by, for the call. By the way, Britt Burns, he gave up the home run to Tito Landrum. I want to say it was the 83 playoffs that helped propel the Orioles towards the World Series. So, yeah, good good memory there. But, you know, we're making new memories here with this Britt. Anyway, I he Luis, what was it? Who who was it that we were talking Luis about? Garcia. Luis Garcia. Luis um, Garcia, what are your what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are uh correct. He he's been he's been playing really well in Triple A. And the Nationals have gotten next to no production out of that shortstop position early on in the season. Um, you know, I think entering Wednesday that shortstops were hitting 128, uh, no home runs, 18 strikeouts. Uh, you look at what is going on at AAA, uh, and Garcia is playing well. Um, let me see. He entered entered today hitting 323, two home runs, 896 OPS, which is on base plus slugging. He's already claimed a Player of the Week award as well. Uh, here's the thing, though. Davey Martinez was asked about this today, and He's talked about he talked about he's hitting the ball really well. Uh, they have said the issue is defense, is what Davey said today. Davey said, "quote We talked to him and he's working hard to get better. He's working on his footwork, working on being a little bit quitter, quicker, setting his feet when he throws." Uh, and you know that is true. He recorded errors. It looks like in four of his first five games to begin the season, he has settled in a little bit. Ben, uh, I think base running is something that they want him to improve in as well. Here's the thing, though. The Nationals aren't set up to win now. If they were, anybody who could maybe help them would come up. They are not really in a position to be rushing guys. And if Luis Garcia comes up here and struggles really bad, and those of you who are Carter Keeboom fans might remember this in 2019, they called up Carter Keeboom before he was ready, and I think it did a ton of damage to him mentally. That's the problem with young players. You come up here, you struggle, and... You go back down, and you're in a bad headspace. It's better to let a guy dominate AAA for a long stretch of time than to call him up before he's ready just because you're not getting any production. Because, again, this isn't a year the Nationals are expected to contend. It's the... uh... It's like in Bull Durham when Kevin Costner is trying to explain to Tim Robbins like the keys to figuring this out. And basically, he says you got to have... You just got to be arrogant, basically. You got to have confidence. You just have to believe because it's going to be rough. They're going to mow you down. They're going to they're they're going to they're going to run all over you. You just have to stay that faith and believe. And if you do, and frankly, this is a, a reasonable life lesson as well. But it is in particular, you know, in this sport, you've all pro sports, but in this sport, you've got to be able to just maintain that confidence because it won't be easy. You will go through slumps. Even veterans do, and you just have to believe that it's going to happen. But with the younger players until you've proven to your own self that you can kind of do it, it is hard to believe that it's going to happen. Right. And one other interesting thing he brought up, um, I did discuss the what's going on in the minor leagues, uh, and it is because of the pitch clock. That is why they're shaving off this dead time. Guys are having to get into the box. Pitchers are having to throw the next pitch. 
Um, the other thing, of course, with home runs being down in the big leagues is the humidors that they are now having in every park. And we can ask Eno about this because Eno is like a expert when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, and he will tell you the effect that this is having. He will comment. Humidors, like they got cigars? Like, like it, it regulates the temperature. Uh, they used to have them at just certain stadiums. So now they're pretty much everywhere. Um, and I think people weren't really sure what was going to happen at certain ballparks. Um, Eno has written about this extensively. We're going to get him and take a quick break and get his thoughts on this because um, it is changing the game. It is changing the early stats and some of the things that we are seeing. Also get some insight from him on the Nats development uh, and basically what's going on in MLB as well. Uh, so stick with us. Britt Giroli, Ben Standing, back with you here in just a moment. Ben, our next guest, no joke, one of the brightest baseball minds you will ever find. I, I'm, I'm aware. I, 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 I'm, as much as I can be relative to a how, not the sport I pay most attention to. But you know, he's a colleague. I'm aware of his, uh, his resume. He's a colleague. He podcasts fantasy baseball. He is the man. If you're not following him already on Twitter. Eno Saris uh, works with us at The Athletic. Let's bring Eno on. Uh, Eno does a terrific job covering all kinds of smart stuff, the stuff that we don't really understand. What's up, Eno? <laughs> You're just buttering me up for our podcast, aren't you? <laughs> no, we actually, we're talking about this last segment. We got a call uh, from a caller that wanted to know about the home runs, and I was trying to explain the humidors to Ben. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to wait for Eno because he <laughs> does a much better job explaining this than I ever could. Um, so, you know, why is this affecting the offense? Yeah, it's, it's actually a super moving target right now. And I'm trying to gather this all for a piece that should be on The Athletic next week. But, you know, I, what makes it so hard is we don't know what ball we're working with from year to year. And last year they announced, and, you know, Ken, and I, Ken Rosenthal and I wrote about this piece that, you know, they're going to deaden the ball. And the reason they're going to deaden the ball is so they can make it the same, so they're consistent every year. And that's why they're putting the humidors in, so that it's consistently stored from park to park. And everything's about consistency. But then last year they ran out of balls, and they had to use balls from the year before. So this year we're supposedly using last year's balls and not 2020s balls. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's kind of hard to like figure out exactly what's the ball's fault, what's the humidor's fault. And then on top of that, when you, when you use a humidor, if you use a humidor in a dry place like Denver or Arizona, you actually add water to the ball because it's super dry and the humidor is getting it to a certain level, a consistent level. And then, so in Arizona and Denver, it deadened the ball. It didn't fly as far because it had more water in it. Now, what we're finding with these other 20 places is it should dry out the ball. Now, here's the last part that makes it more complicated. And I don't want to. I don't want to get too nerdy, but it's not the most humid time of the year right now. So right now, the humidors might be doing something different than they're going to do in August in Baltimore or Atlanta or even San Francisco, where it gets pretty, it's pretty humid. So 
Uh, and then the last thing is we just don't know how the balls were stored before. So were they stored in air conditioning? Were they dried out? And now we're actually adding water to all of these balls. So between the humidor and the new ball, it's kind of hard to tell who's like what's at fault. But 100%, it's not your eyes. It's not the weather. You can adjust for the weather. It's the balls are you know not flying as far, and home runs are definitely down. It's not just the weather. Uh, Eno, uh, I'm a simple guy, and you think you just kind of broke my brain a little bit there because, like, <laughs> these things, like, I, I mean, covering football, like, yeah, we had the Tom Brady deflate gate thing, and they, you know, that that brought in a whole some science to that. But other than that, we don't really deal with that. It's the ball goes out there, and every so often, the NBA, because of a sponsorship thing, changes something. What, what, why, why is baseball a sport that's been around since the beginning of time? Why are they still fumbling around with these things. Why has this not been dealt with many moons ago? You know, uh, there, there were, there was a little bit last year in basketball. If you remember in the NBA, there was the, the different ball and people saying that the three point percentage was down because of it. So right. it does happen a little bit from different sports, but in baseball, I think the big difference is that the ball in baseball is handmade. They just they haven't figured out a process that to do it in an efficient and cost effective manner to do it uh, with machines. So with the handmade process, that's why they ran out of balls last year because of COVID. They had to shut some factories down in Mexico and they ran out of people to to, to stitch the balls, and so they ran out of t- new balls. At least that's that's what the story was from MLB. So. You know, when you when you have a handmade ball, that's why they keep trying to like find a consistent way to do it because uh, you you've just you've got human error. And in fact, baseball I think has uh, human error on the other side. I had a story about bats, and the bats are actually handmade too. So you've got these the the, the, the two most important aspects of of a of a baseball game: the bat and the ball are are both handmade and that just creates noise and i'm i'm not talking crap on humans i i am a human uh but you know <laughs> like uh humans make errors you know like it's just um you know if you have a you have a machine making it you, you're more likely to have fewer errors talking to you know saris here of the athletic mlb you know obviously we're here in dc people want to know about the nationals rebuild i know you have some strong thoughts about how they develop guys but when you look at this team and you look at some of their younger players, are there guys that you feel good about? Um, <laughs> Don't jump all at I once, mean, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, Kate Cavalli could be could be an, an interesting young pitcher. I'm, I'm interested to see uh, what he does when he gets to the big leagues. But the thing that bothers me a little bit about some of the young hitters and some of the guys that have come through is you have Juan Soto on your team and Juan Soto is almost the perfect hitter in terms of today's baseball. What you want to do is have power to all fields. You want to hit barrels, which is a, a stat cast that, but you want to hit the ball hard in the air and you want to never swing at a, at a ball. You never want to, you know, never want to chase a ball. And so they have Juan Soto on their team. And yet this team is in the bottom three when it comes to barrels. And they are in the bottom 10 when it comes to swinging at balls, which is amazing because they have like the best player in baseball when it comes to swinging at balls. So everybody else is just bad at this. And you could just look to your best player and say, 
hey, can we develop some guys to be maybe even a, a, a B or a C version of Juan Soto? Because a C version of Juan Soto, if you had three more of those guys, you'd have a really good team. And um, I don't know that they've managed to do that. I, I, don't, I don't look around and see uh, a player that's like that. You know, if you look at Luis Garcia or Carter Keeboom, they're good players, but they do reach at pitches too often. They don't hit the ball with authority. And, I don't, and Victor Robles has had his problems. So I just don't see a young player that, you know, kind of emulates Soto in this way that has been positive. So uh, to that end, I guess, like when you have a team that's like, you know, looks like they're not going to be a contender this year, then it becomes a question of what's the future look like. And a lot of that, therefore, comes from development and the process, you know, whether it's from the minor leagues all the way up. What's your view of what the Nats have? They haven't had to. Obviously, they've been developing players, but they've had a, a, a much stronger major league team. So what's the, what do you see from the minor league side, the, the development program going forward? Yeah, you know, Brent and I did some reporting on this, and we've written about this. And, you know, I think the pitching side is in real trouble. They're near the bottom of the league when it comes to developing velocity. Uh, if you're looking for a homegrown pitching prospect, that's, you, you know, when, when you're a good pitching team, you develop, like, look at Josiah Gray. Like, you know, the Dodgers are good. They have low picks. They're good every year. They have low picks, and they just develop the crap out of their guys that they have. And then, boom, we've got a Josiah Gray, and we trade him away, and we keep, we keep rocking. You know, by this time, the Nationals should have developed their own Josiah Gray. <laughs> you know? Like, they should have had at least a couple guys that come through and, and become, you know, major league uh, pitchers. And, I mean, I think their success stories right now are like Tanner Rainey, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, an audio dot, dot, dot. So uh, I, I think the pitching side is in trouble. Uh, the hitting side, you know, I think that's sometimes you just got to get lucky sometimes. Uh, but you can, you know, like the, the, the Astros do, you know, have certain principles and, and ways that they develop hitters. And, you know, they, they, they found hitters over the years. Jordan Alvarez was a, was a small trade they made. Jeremy Pena uh, was not a big signing, didn't cost a lot of money. You know, that's their starting shortstop and their best or second best hitter right now. So, you know, they they need to they need they have some work to do on player development, some serious work. Totally agree. You know, uh, one more and then I'll let you go. Patrick Corbin is starting tomorrow night's game against the Giants. I said earlier, you can't expect 2019 Patrick Corbin maybe ever again. But I don't think he's as bad as his numbers were last year either. Um, you know, early on, he hasn't looked great. Is there any reason to believe that he can kind of find the median here a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that uh, Corbin has always had and, and will always have, I think, is that slider. And the, the good news for him is that the slider is the best pitch in baseball. I think, you know, if you look at trends in baseball, uh, slider, you see the slider being thrown every year more and more. If you can command the slider, you can use the slider for, for called strikes. You can use it when you're behind in the count. And he can really command the slider. So, you know, I know his velo isn't the way it is it used to be, but uh, you know, if he since he has this great slider and he can command it, you know, I think he can at least be a decent pitcher because, you know, if he needs a strike, he can go to the fastball or the slider. And if he needs a swinging strike, he can go to the slider. And sometimes even if he's pitching backwards, go to the fastball. So, I know he's just a two pitch guy, and he's never really developed that third pitch, but. He's got a great slider that's 
one of the best in the game still, and uh, that'll that'll make you last for a while. So I do expect better days for him this year. Awesome. Well, thank you, Eno. Great stuff as always. Uh, follow him, read his stuff. Ben's mind is still reeling, I think, from your first answer. <laughs> I'm quiet because I don't know what else to say at this point. <laughs> Eno Saris, one of the best, brightest, smartest minds in baseball. I told you, Ben. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guy. Thanks so much, Eno. Thanks. I know. I, I told you. he come The way he looks at things, you know, I, I we go on a podcast together, 3-0 show, part of the athletic MLB show at Derek Van Riper, and uh, we'll talk about the early offense, and I'll just give a few reasons, and he'll have, like, batted barrel velocity and exit velocity numbers and chase rates and all these you know, very scientific ways to look at things, and I'm just like, here's what I think with no merit whatsoever. Sure. I can I can respect that. My brain was broken both on what he was saying, plus I was just looking online. The Memphis Grizzlies and Minnesota Timberwolves are basically tied because the Grizzlies just went on a 21 nothing run in the second half. So apparently that whole game is breaking brains as well. We'll talk about uh, the night in the NBA. Uh, we'll talk a little more about uh, the, the Nats, the Commanders, here on 106.7 The Fan. All right, welcome back. 106.7 The Fan, Ben Standing, and Britt Jaroli here. We have TVs on in the studio here and whatever the channels are on for before. So Britt and I were just discussing, like, what should we talk about? And I looked at the TVs. One is a hockey game, Tampa Bay, Toronto. And if you've listened to Britt and I, Britt certainly uh, pays attention to hockey as a fan. And I, I'm a fan, but I don't watch it on the regular. So I can't really address this too much. The other TV is just WWE. Which I, if we could, if we could go back to the Randy Macho Man Savage days, I have some things to say, but I don't even know who the two gentlemen currently in the ring are. So based on the televisions, we're not going to be—at least I won't be able to come up with a, a topic or two here. We'll have to, you know, use the, the our brains and and contemplate other things. Are you, are you a, a wrestling uh, person? Or have no, you ever been? I thought we were just going to talk about the Grizzlies game, but they're not on on either TV. This is what I'm Donald, saying. We, we've been so. Producer. Yeah, we've been so focused on on putting together this great oh. this great show for you since eight o'clock, but you have yet to uh, th- to look at the TVs. You know what though, Donald next door has the playoff game on in his little enclave. Enclave in his little suite. It's next- in the, wait, enclave or the enclave? Enclave? I don't know. Whatever it is, enclave. I guess enclave. Whatever it Boy, is. What do they teach you up there in uh, New England or wherever you're from? <laughs> you know what? Whatever it is, Donald is sitting there happy as a clam getting to watch the run, and we're watching some pay-per-view special, WWE. Yeah, we'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to fix that in the break. But as, as Ben said, yeah, I've, I've been kind of keeping my eye on the run here because I saw that Minnesota was up big, but, yeah, now currently Memphis is up by three with about three minutes left. So they've gone on a strong run for sure. How did they not score one point? That's remarkable. I mean, it, yeah, that, that's a lot going on. It's pretty, it's pretty rare. Obviously, we don't know what was happening. But this is like when we talked the other day, right as the playoffs were starting, and we were going through some predictions, my my sort of takeaway overall was this feels like a playoffs where it's sort of a bit of a changing of the guard because whether you're talking about the dominant teams like Phoenix has not been a historically dominant team. No LeBron in these playoffs. Kevin Durant is a good lower seed. But then you have a series like this, Memphis, Minnesota, 
were two young teams really exciting, but these are definitely not powerhouses. And this is the first real big stage for John Morant as a front runner situation, you know, where he is the, the, um, the hunted and, uh, you know, the fact that it's basically a tie game and they had to go a 21 run means Memphis was getting smoked. And somehow, I don't know if it was, if it was Ja or others, but they've willed themselves back into this game. So good for them. And we'll see, uh, how this concludes. I say C. I don't know if we'll actually get to watch it, but we'll see. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll work that out. I promise. We'll we'll get you guys going uh, once we hit the break. All right, fair. <laughs> fa- Just giving you a hard time. Fair, fair, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, but yeah, no, it's going to be the, these playoffs are are fascinating for sure. I, I watched some of the uh, Celtics Nets game last night, and uh, you know, th- to see the Nets down two zero with Durant and Kyrie. I mean, they were the lower seed. I picked the Celtics to win. You have the Celtics, I believe, going to the NBA final. So yeah. we both thought they would advance. But nonetheless, you know, when you have two of the, you know, 10 best players or so in the league and you're down 2-0, uh, it's just a reminder of that whole situation. And by the way, Ben Simmons, I believe, is coming back. I think they said game four is what I saw, not game three. That is an entire, I mean, <laughs> Who even knows what that's going to be like? What, this guy who's who came up short in multiple ways hasn't played in forever. He's coming back to the pressure pack playoffs with, at a minimum, his team will be down two to one, at a minimum. So, uh, good luck to Mister Simmons with an easy return. Uh, by the way, and yeah, no, that won't be great. Oh, imagine being a Timberwolves fan though. They led by twenty plus. Now they trail by like five. With four minutes to go, right? And um, you're, you're th- a thirty-two to six run, and that's remarkable. Assuming the other team didn't actually just lay down on the court, that's that's remarkable for an NBA playoff game. Think yeah. about that. Yeah, the Grizzlies have outscored the the, the Timberwolves twenty-six to seven in this quarter after the Timberwolves were up thirty-nine to twenty-one after the first quarter. So obviously a huge swing of events there, and we talked about earlier. With Phoenix, Devin Booker's out at least a couple of weeks with uh, a hamstring strain. Uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens, but that's a huge development. Even if Phoenix gets past this opening round series, which I still presume that they will, though it's now 1 1, what does this injury mean? It's not like a guy comes back from an injury and he's automatically 100%. Uh, Devin Booker is their best, uh, their top scorer. Memphis is the two seed. So, you know, all of a sudden things change. Uh, just like that with, in the case of injuries, uh, especially in a sport like the NBA, where in the playoffs you only have a small, relatively small amount of people who are really kind of running the show, and that guy is, you know, arguably your best player. Yeah. it. You know what's been cool about these NBA playoffs so far? There hasn't been too many games you could turn off early. Uh, there's been so many close games. Like, think about it. There hasn't been a lot of like, ugh, I guess I can go to bed. I don't need to watch this. And that, to me, early on is the sign of a really good playoffs. Well, you know, it's what we talked earlier about the differences in sports. The thing about the NBA, because there are so many points in a given game, you're never really out of it. You always have the opportunity to to come back, the three-point shot and so on. So, uh, you know, it, 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 the nature of the sport, just so many possessions, uh, you know, kind of keeps both teams in in striking distance at all times. and. We're seeing a little bit of that, plus the intensity level's way up. The talent level, obviously, is off the charts for a lot of these teams. The best of the best are out there, uh, you know, other than LeBron. <laughs> other than LeBron, who was tweeting, though. he, he I, was, I saw he was tweeting earlier. I'm sure it's all very genuine stuff. 
Wow, Ben, tell us how you really feel about LeBron. He did earlier, about an hour ago. The majority of playoff games are won on how you close each quarter. Wow, there's some good insight. He should go right to the broadcast booth with that one. Um, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to go right to a, a break. But when we come back, uh, we can get back into a little bit of the NFL draft. I had a new mock draft up on The Athletic. Britt, of course, can uh, help us recap kind of what happened with the Nats today. We'll get to all that and more here on 106.7 The Fan.